visions and tones. Welcome to episode number six. And this is more of a resting episode, a bit of a short lift. And I want to just give a bit of a reflection of where we came from as the visions and tones. And also just to respond to maybe one or two you know, questions that came out from the previous episodes. And I want to thank each and every one of you for your love and support. And I do not say this in a very less kind of meaning way. I really mean this from the bottom of my heart. I mean, as a show, we've worked so hard and I've been receiving the love and support from you people. And I appreciate you. Even for sharing the work, introducing me to some of your friends who all of a sudden became listeners of the Visions and Tones. I really, really appreciate it. I cannot imagine this time of the year or just this season itself as being an easy season for everybody. I mean, we are even stuck in COVID. So whichever generation will listen to this episode in the next 30 years, they'll know that from 2019 and all through to 2021, we've been battling a pandemic, which actually had similar sort of challenges in the world to the Spanish flu of 1918, which crossed from 1918 all the way through to 1920 and left just about 500 million people infected and an estimated of 100 million deaths. Currently today, we are actually sitting on just, you know, over um, 100 million infections of COVID. And we are actually on just above 200 million of deaths and over 75 million of recoveries. This is actually the hardest time for people. And my heart goes out to all families who have lost their loved ones. And, you know, more gratitude goes to all essential workers, all, you know, friends who are very intentional with their many other friends, or with even family members. You know, this is the hardest time where we need to recognize that COVID has actually exposed a whole lot of things, you know, toxic friendships, shaky leaderships, abusive bosses, um, so many things. Not that these things were not in existence prior to COVID times, but it has just intensified and made us to be more aware of certain things that are, ex- that are happening around us. And I want to invite you as a li- listeners of Visions and Tones that if you have never ever thought about the word intentionality in terms of your friendship, in terms of your love for those around you, even family. Think more about it. And this is a phrase that is often used generally by so many people, but without giving a proper con- you know, conceptualization of what it means. And this is sort of the frame that I use when I speak about intentionality. How likely are you to actually get to find out from the people around you what their life goals are and how much do you work in helping them achieve their goals? And secondly, how likely are you to actually see the potential 
within the people around you and you help them see the potential and also help them to achieve it. But that has to come from the context of love where you see people thriving in the most, you know, amazing way. And I want to challenge you, if you've never gotten to this point, begin to think about how you can be intentional in terms of your friendship, in terms of your relationship. And to all our essential workers who are working so hard during this COVID times, irrespective of whether you're getting a pay or you're doing it for money or whatever the case, I want to commend you. And I want to dedicate this song that is actually playing here, produced by a brother in South Africa, DJ Mike Soul SA. And the song is titled Identity. And I pray that your identity during this time should actually be covered with more love, more intentionality, and may you continue to be the light for the world. This is dedicated to you, Identity. Okay, okay. So, I can actually plug you with a song so you can listen to it much more later. But I want to get into the bit of reflections about the show, The Visions and Tones. And in the previous episodes, I've actually spoken a bit about how people can actually connect with me to have more conversation with me about whatever comes out from the shows. And this was in light of the fact that I knew that some of the things that will be spoken in the show can actually make people uncomfortable. I'm not yet sure, though, whether I am ready to sort of open a certain page for the visions and tones where people can actually communicate through and everybody can see everybody's comments or whatever the case. And this is because I'm still working on different other projects and probably... If I finish those projects, I can actually come to terms with opening a separate page where we can actually continue with the conversation, especially for people who are outside, you know, the show, which is you, the listeners across the world and wherever you are. So in the introduction of the show, I actually specified different ways in which the visions and tones will be delivered. And I want to actually reiterate those simply because I still have people who actually write to me and, you know, express different concerns about how the show has been presented. And probably it's because there's a certain conventional way that you are used to the show or podcast being presented. And you find that sometimes the creativity within the show actually throws you off, so to say. So I said there's three different ways in which the visions and tones will be presented to you. And the first one is through monologues. And so far, I've done one, which was understanding the point of critique. And this resting show is actually the second monologue that I'm doing, which has a bit of a reflection, but a bit of educational here and there. Just stay tuned. Maybe we can get to that point in time. So I found people who actually express the fact that they do not understand monologues because in their forms of presentation or probably even in the passion in which I may have said certain things, monologues sound rather more uncomfortable to people. And 
certain points that I may have said appeared to sound like sort of a mainsplain kind of a thing or rather patronizing to people. And if ever it happened that you felt like there was a way I was being patronizing to you or your culture or your people or any other person, I really wish to apologize because the visions and tones is definitely not a show that is actually driven by egoism and, you know, patronizing people, looking down at people. I wish for us to actually have a proper engagement where we can actually grow in a more respectable and also in a more um, constructive way. I see us talking more about, you know, criticisms um, in a way that we can still be friends tomorrow than in a way that we become more enemies. I mean, if you can recall all the other points that I've raised within episode one, they should be able to tell that I really want to retain friends than losing friends. So if I came across in a very rude way to you, I do apologize. Now, the second way in which I deliver the visions and tones is through um, a guest interview. And if you'd recall the chat we had with Ms. Shauna McKee when we were talking about raising children and the conversation we had with Dr. Donet about mental health and the conversation we had with Dr. Pedro Garcia when we were talking about COVID-19 and the vaccine and the conspiracies around. So all episodes were actually loved, but I actually found very problematic that even with Dr. Garcia, we tried to address some of the conspiracies, and Dr. Garcia tried by all means to bring more of even um, scholarly work, which were drawn from health institutions such as um, Pfizer, Moderna, and Oxford. But what we find is the fact that there's still some people who actually could not agree with Dr. Garcia, but could not bring in evidence of whatever assertions they were bringing to the table. And it reminded me of a point in episode one where I spoke about speaking from a point of being informed or if you want to learn, at least make sure that that is visible, that can be felt. But sadly, I could not sort of feel this thing happening. So people were actually opposing Dr. Garcia, some of them, um, but simply because they still remain devoted to the conspiracy theories. And this actually reminds me of what Franz Fanon coined as cognitive dissonance. The fact that it doesn't matter even what sort of evidence you're going to bring to people. But whenever people have made up their minds, they become adamant to actually stick to whatever they believe as a version of truth. And this is the same that Dr. Garcia raised on episode number four, when he spoke about the fact that conspiracy theories are more relatable and they're easily to trust and people feel like they are a part of or a form of, you know, um, whatever narratives are within the conspiracy theory. And he said this, that's a sad reality that we have to face today, the fact that people cannot turn away from conspiracy. And that actually is something that even happened. But nonetheless, this doesn't take out the brilliance of Dr. Garcia and his experience and 
how smart and how he remains devoted in teaching people and particularly taking work from a more scholarly scientific language into more of a layman's language so people understand part of his work in actually a larger context. In terms of, you know, Ms. Shana McKeeben, we received also a bit of a pushback, but it wasn't such a sad pushback. I feel like it was a very good pushback because it sort of made the narratives or the conversation, the contestation to be much more further in a sense that people actually express the fact that we have to sort of continuously update our knowledge about, you know, the ever-changing laws about parenting and parent-child and whatnot. And we have a good friend of ours who actually called us, who works um, with, you know, youth and child care, who actually expressed the fact that laws are a bit changing, and particularly on the point that we spoke about the Australian law, in relation to, you know, how women are sort of given more voice or more... um, care as opposed to men and but the underlying thing here that remained was the fact that not even was Miss Shauna McKeeben incorrect but she actually even put on the disclaimer that most of her views are views based on her surrounding and the things that she's observing and along with the youth care um, officer friend of ours we actually came to the realization that that particular episode wasn't really mainly about tarnishing the name of the state, either here or in South Africa or in Ireland where she came from or in many other parts of the world where Miss McKeeben lived. And also we had to come to the realization that sometimes individuals who work for the state can be biased in defiance of the state laws. But again, with that being said, I think we cannot also sort of fail to understand the fact that even employees of the state becomes the voice of the state to certain different kinds of people, and that is how we often have to understand them. But nonetheless, we appreciate the love and the correction and the invitation to sort of broadening and widening our thinking in terms of the laws of child care in Australia and also just anyway, you know, um, around the world. So I think there was also a bit of an overlap between, you know, the South African laws or and the Australian laws. And in a sense that some of the critiques that may have been posed in Australia could be something that is very relatable to people in South Africa and other people in other African countries or people in also various countries outside of Australia, uh, sort of Africa and also, you know, just outside the Australian context. The third one, which was with Dr. Donne, I mean, uh, third episode in terms of the uh, guest interview, amazing. People showed so much love to Dr. Donne, and there wasn't much more of a pushback to that particular episode. People are wishing for him to actually get back again so he can teach more about mental health. They love the intersectionality or rather integration of you know mental health and spirituality and substance abuse and also the traditional aspect particularly for those who actually are devoted in the decolonial work and the pan-african sort of school of thought and you know we're looking forward to have 
Dr. Donne back soon and also have Ms. Shana McKeven back soon again so that we can talk more about, you know, relationships and secrets in relationships and whatsoever. She continues to do such a great job as an editor in her company and I'll sort of recommend to you some of the books that she actually edited that you can look at. And one of them includes Freedom to Belong by Dr. Elsa Lukumba, who speaks more about migration. I wonder if you can get that book anyway. But if you need any information about that, I can actually plug you with it. Now, the third way in which the show actually Visions and Tones deliver podcasts is in a form of a doubleheader hosting. And if you'd remember episode number five, where I've got uh, my friend, Mr. Mauro Biose, and we're talking about stack-up people. And there was also more of an educational than just, you know, opinion pieces being brought in because we're speaking about experiences in life and things that we think can actually, you know, help others to become sort of better people. And what I love about that particular episode is the fact that I had friends who actually wrote back and to me and said they love the fact that we're teaching them on how to approach people with curiosity. As you'd recall, Mara said, we need to approach people with curiosity. And they are also learning how to be intentional in terms of their relationships and friendships with people. And we continue to actually wish that this episodes become very educational to you and yours and that you continue loving, sharing, and engaging back, you know, um, um, with us. And, and I love the fact that we are actually open. I'm actually open to sort of take the conversations further, even outside of the show. You know, this is how I make more friends and this is how I get to understand people more. Um, you know, where I can sort of probe them, probe their questions and allow them to also do the same with me, probe part of the things that I say and ask for clarity. And this particular, one particular incident that I actually came across from the very, very, very first episode, um, which has led to, you know, more, um, sort of comfortable and uncomfortable conversations off the record with few friends. If you'd recall, particularly when I spoke about, you know, in, in first episode where I problematized the all white meta kind of a narrative. And at the same time, later on in the show, I spoke about gender-based violence. I had friends who are part of, you know, the black radical feminist community who actually expressed a bit of a concern in, in, in Michael, in, in the, just the way I spoke about, you know, um, the black radical feminists and also in the way that I spoke about, um, the expansion of gender-based violence. And I've, I had friends in South Africa who also wrote to me and said, you, you, you problematizing all lives matter at some point. And again, in another point, you sort of, um, uh, uh, problematizing or rather calling for the expansion of, um, you know, gender-based violence. Um, the definition of gender-based violence. And the question was, am I not doing the same thing as what has been done in, you know, the all lives matter kind of a narrative? And this is going to be now the hard part because I have to respond to that. And I felt like those are very competent, you know, 
um, beautiful questions as always that there's never a stupid um, question or rather as we believe um, I like the fact that the I continued with the sort of narratives and responses to this kind of you know question with people off the record but I guess also this is indicative of the fact that I am you know visible I'm not out of reach you know, uh, people can actually, um, um, you know, get to me. But I want to sort of give you a couple of responses to this and, and, and why I felt like the way I came about in my call for gender, for an expansion of gender-based violence actually stands where it comes from. And I hope that I'm not going to sort of come at you in a way that I sound very patronizing, but at the same time, if you feel like that's going to be the case. I want to apologize in advance. And I want to also call on to you to sort of feel free to write at me, to connect with me for more conversation. Look, like I said, visions and tones is to educate. But at the same time, I want to learn and I want to learn from you. But I want to learn in a very good way where there's no sort of cancel culture, in a way where there's no sort of... Um, less respect so to say to people and where actually the values of episode one of understanding the point of critique are actually sort of thrown out of the window so let us all learn um from these unpopular um perspectives now how do i start in response to this i feel like the all lives matter narrative is actually a deliberate a deliberate undermining a deliberate undermining of people's experiences in a sense that the narratives are actually even advanced or posed by people who are even less likely, if not at all, to experience racism. So most people who are actually behind the All Lives Matter narrative are people who do not actually and have not and might not even be victims of racism. I mean, think about All Lives Matter as a narrative that has been said or spoken mostly by white people. How likely are white people to experience racism? Who out there can actually come out as more superior than white people? Because the constant fight has always been about superiority over inferiority. And who is more superior and who's more inferior? And who's more inclusive and who's not more inclusive? Now, the All Lives Matter narrative also have few of our black friends and brothers and whatnot who actually feel like white people are not racist. Obviously, when I say white people, I'm not really talking about the entire white people. For those who want to, who really want to push me to the point where we become very politically correct um, by using most uh, some, most, some, most, some kind of a, you know, delivery. But anyways, I feel like, I feel like the all lives matter is more about just the deliberate turning of a blind eye because even the most people, when you ask them about, you know, the experiences of black people, they actually bring in defense as though both black and white people are having the similar experiences of racism in its institutional form and 
in its structural form, and that is actually not true. There is no even particular history of colonization that can actually point to you on how non-whites invaded spaces of white people and actually, you know, perpetuated a certain form of racism or a certain form of superiority, so to say. And I do not think even to think about all lives matter and the narratives about you know, racism, dating even back to colonization across different um, countries. I do not actually even think that such a thing can happen in the contemporary with black people, particularly being the ones who are leading it. So, so I'm not really jumping onto the idea of, you know, all lives matter. And I feel like all lives matter is on its own side than trying to compare me who say let's actually expand the conceptualization of gender-based violence and then you want to actually equate that with all lives matter i feel like those are very two different um strands so to say i feel like all lives matter attempts to sort of coerce people into this sort of inclusivity of an egalitarianism that does not exist you know, um, yeah, I hope, I hope I'm making sense in that way. But um, then in terms of the, my call for the, you know, expansion of gender-based violence, I want to actually speak about, you know, a few things, maybe three points. The first point when I said men too are vulnerable or maybe even particularly mostly black men are vulnerable. I know that many people actually received this from first the point of me saying men are vulnerable in the hands of women. And as much as that is part two of my argument, but I want to bring part one of my argument, why I said that. I feel like, and... It's up to you whether you've observed this in your community or you have not observed this um, um, in your community. I feel like men, some men too, are actually victims of the very same patriarchy and toxic masculinity. And that's the reality that we actually need to be more aware of when I speak about men too being vulnerable. And I want to actually draw you closer to the works of Dr. Malosi um, Langa in South Africa, who is a psychologist and an academic, who actually wrote a book, Becoming Men, which actually documents narratives from about 32 men who live in a township of Alexandra. And in this book, I want you to actually try get the book and read the book because I'm not going to sort of give you everything about the book. And I might actually even give you sort of a one-sided thing. But Dr. Malosi actually exposes us or introduces us to different forms of masculinities. So if you have ever thought that there's maybe just one form of masculinity and it's actually the toxic one, welcome to the fact that there's various forms of masculinities. There are some men today in a growing trend of them who actually do not advocate for toxic masculinity that actually parades power by violating men, uh, women and children or that is into, you know, rape or any form of sad abuse or whatnot. So there are some men who are actually 
not supporting that. And the reality is that these men too, due to their disapproval of that kind of a toxic masculinity, they too can actually become victims of the very same toxic masculinity. Now, I'm not saying this is part of the things that Dr. Malas is saying in the book, but he is presenting to us different forms of masculinities, and you can actually get the book and read the book to understand more about what um, um, he is saying there. So think about the fact that think about the fact that a man who does not project sort of the masculinity features, a man who cries today, a man who's capable, who's able to actually speak about his experiences and speak about his feelings can actually be called a CC and can actually be, you know, called other derogatory terms or even be called gay, even if that's not the case by men who are actually very toxic. And think about the fact that some of them can actually even be brutalized by men who feel like they have to showcase what to be a man is today through the use of violence. That's the one aspect. Men, too, are actually victims of the very same patriarchy and toxic masculinity. And the second part is the fact that, yes, I meant that. In When I said men, too, are vulnerable, in the sense that there are men who are actually victims in the hands of women. So as much uh, or as far as there are plenty of women who remain silent and hide the fact that they are being abused by their lovers who are men, we need to think about the fact that there are also men who hide the fact that they are being abused and victimized by their lovers. It could be through talks, it could be through public humiliation, it could be in whatever forms. And I know that this now begins to sound more outside the scope of violence, but you know, we can contest later on what what violence is and 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 whether should we only speak about physical violence or we can also speak about emotional violence and so on and so forth. So as far as the women who hide the fact that they are being abused by their lovers, I believe that there's also men who hide the fact that they are being abused by their lovers. I mean, there's few people that I know who actually happen to take their lives while they've actually been fighting the whole issue of gender-based violence. I know a few men who've got marks in their bodies because they've been pressed on with a hot iron by their um female lovers and I feel like those are part of the things that we cannot be silent about just because we want to put across the narratives that there's only abusive men I feel like if we are to heal society we actually need to think about the fact that violence is violence irrespective of who does it, when and how and we need to speak against any um Sort of violence. And the third point that actually meant when I say we need to expand issues of gender based violence is the fact that sometimes when we speak about gender based violence, as I said in the first episode, our focus runs more to women and we actually forget the fact that there's also other minorities. So we've never thought about people in same sex practice and the fact that they too can experience any forms of gender based violence. And in one of the presentations that I watched, which you can find from uh, the University of Johannesburg, you know, Facebook library page, Dr. Malos actually raised this form of an argument, the fact that an expansion of gender-based violence might be more needed. 
simply because we need to also think about violence, not only from the perspective of male to female, but also the perspective of female to male and the perspective of male to male or female to female. So we may need to actually think much more about that. So it is within this particular context where I said there's other minorities that are not actually brought into the context. And therefore, my speaking about the expansion of gender-based violence had nothing more to do with undermining the great work of black radical feminists or not being in touch with experiences of women today. And I guess, you know, in, in, in so doing with my sort of call, I came across, um, um, the fact that my view or my call may have leaned more towards what is called a womanist approach. And I know that I've, I've sort of engaged with so many people about what womanism is and, and how we can learn about womanism. I'm not now going to claim to be an expert in womanism. I'm not even an expert in gender studies, nor an expert in, 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 in feminism. And, and I'm a guy who believes in the emancipation of women socially, politically, economically, and whatsoever, because I lived among great women and I've seen great women leadership and how they're able to unify even the toxic masculinity among men. And I'm not in denial of the fact that toxic masculinity Toxic masculinity does exist, and I feel like it exists, and I feel like um, it it should be called out whenever we see it. But on on this on the note of a womanist approach, I actually want to bring to your attention the works of um, Alice Walker, who actually writes about womanism, and apparently the, the the phrase womanism appears for the first time in her text, in her text, um, in search of a in, in search of our uh, mother's garden, which is a womanist prose. In search of our, in search of our mother's garden, a womanist prose. So if if you if you're keen in reading books, you can actually get hold of the book. It was written in 1983. So Alice Walker also wrote the book, The Color Purple, um, in 1982, which was actually turned into a film in 1985, which Hoopy Goldberg is actually featured in it. And the book tackles issues such as patriarchy, toxic masculinity, racism, colorism, domestic violence, uh, and also woman power and the strength across women and women emancipation. So succinctly, a womanist approach actually emphasizes the fact that, or rather a womanist approach emphasizes more of what they are for than what they are against as per feminism. Because feminism has been about, you know, the dichotomy between men and women. And I know that in its inception, there was actually even more contestation as to whether feminism tackles racism or it, it tackles sexism or it brings an inter intersectionality of racism and sexism and many other isms that may exist. So womanism actually speaks more about the fact that it believes in the survival and the wholeness of all people. So Alice Walker's work actually does not believe in a separatist approach where people have to be actually put into different groups and different structures and whatnot. And she believes the fact that black men too should actually be looked after because they remain part of a great integral of a black woman's life and a black woman's family. And, and, um, In a way, I feel like she's not coming hard 
against um, feminism because she understands that there's also a lot of black radical feminists who actually did quite great work to contribute into feminism. But I feel like she calls on even the black radicals, um, radical feminists to actually think about, you know, even the manner of approach, whether this whole idea of, of in, being inherently against men does it stands to unify or does it stands to actually divide um, society? So there's many things that we can actually um, learn from a womanist approach. It doesn't mean, and, and a womanist approach still remains a black woman's voice because a womanist approach comes in, in, in the eighties, in the early eighties, simply because there's greater scholars in feminism who tried to actually, black scholars who tried to actually make greater contributions in the feminist work, but we actually, uh, sideline, they couldn't find a voice because feminism in its inception much more focused on, you know, women, white women in particular and whatnot. And, and so Alice Walker felt like much more work of these black scholars who come and write from a feminist perspective are not recognized and therefore black radical, black women also, you know, deserve or, or deserve to actually come up with a notion that they can find pride in. And that is where now the works of black radical, uh, the works of women is actually um, come from. Like I said earlier on, I'm not an expert of um, womanism and I'm not an expert of feminism. Um, and this show, as I said, it was a resting point to give you a bit of a reflection on where it came from and to also respond to a few questions. I think I came to this point in trying to respond to the fact that my call for uh, the expansion of gender-based violence has more to do with following a womanist approach. And now I'm introducing to you a womanist perspective and I'm leading you, I'm linking you or rather um, connecting you to Alice Walker's book, um, In Search of Our Mother's Garden womanist prose if you can look at it and look at more work there's even an episode of the liturgist podcast which actually there's a scholar nikki black who comes and speak about the works of alice walker i think more detailed i think i think maybe maybe not but give it a try and then have a look at it and the whole point of what I'm saying again i'm not trying to undermine anyone or trying to sort of bring the so-called main men's plane kind of an approach or undermining patronizing kind of a way but i wish for us to continue with this sort of engagement and remembering to be respectful and also to be constructive so far we are actually over 700 downloads and overall episodes and thanks to your love and support and in all this over 700 listenership and whatnot, I just had two people who actually had the opportunity to make comments about my voice. I've, I had promised myself I'm not going to speak about this, but now we're here. Let me tell you. Then they said, you do not have a voice of a podcaster. And I felt like, hmm, interesting. Content didn't really matter. What mattered was more about my voice. And I said, let me take this to my producer and speak to him, and I spoke to a great guy, Mr. Sam Usman, who actually said to me, Tony, focus on your brand. You're not trying to be someone, you know, that people have heard before or someone that people are yet to hear, but try to be yourself and deliver to people content based on, you know, what you have and 
open yourself to constructive criticisms that are actually more even in line with content than just many other things around. And I felt like it was from there, listening to my producer's advice, that for some of the, you know, criticisms that I may not have voice to actually engage in, I'll just take a beautiful bow in the same way I'll take a beautiful bow out of this episode in just a sec. But I want to thank you all for choosing the visions and tones. And I hope that we all learn through these unpopular perspectives. And this is me asking you to continue supporting the show and also to continue engaging in a respectful and constructive manner. Have a good one.